So we're in the process of having the Lamb, who is Jesus Christ, opening the seven seals that are on this scroll, and the same pattern is followed. Uh, One of the beasts says, come, and when he says, come, the vision of the seal pops up, and so far we have had four seals broken, and what was behind each one of those four seals? A horse. It was a horse, of course. Yeah. And um, we, we decided, we, let me remind you once again that we can't always be definitive about anything that's a vision because we might not get it right, but we can usually get pretty good ideas, but we just can't be too adamant and say, well, this is doctrine because the whole nature of, of this type of vision, we, can, we need to be careful about doing that. But what, would, what was the general consensus about the first horse? What did it represent? Well, certainly the white horse is, is purity, but what did it symbolize other than just purity? All right. So I think what we settled on, at least I settled on it, maybe I didn't do a good job of putting it out there, that we're talking about the spread of the gospel here. And the basis for that is, though, like I said, you'll find a bunch of commentaries that will disagree with me. But my basis on that is that, first of all, nowhere in the book of Revelation is white symboled for anything other than something good. And um, you have someone who is uh, very similar to what's being described later on as Jesus Christ, though he's not described here, but you have someone else riding on a horse later on, and it is Jesus, riding on a white horse, and it is Jesus. And plus what we're going to be looking at tonight, it seems to fall into the pattern of what we're looking at. Because once we have the spread of the gospel with that first seal being broken, what follows after it? What's the second horse represent? It's a black, no, it's the, it's the red horse, the old red horse, war. And we brought out the fact that that symbolizes that because of the spread of the gospel, there'll be war now. Um, uh, there'll be persecution. And because of the spread of the gospel, and because now there is persecution, it's going to lead to something else, which is the next horse, which was the the black horse. And the black horse brought famine and all the different problems that go along with that. And then finally, we have the fourth seal, seal broken, and the fourth seal is a horse that is what color? Pale, what did you say? Green? Palomino, yeah, it was spotty, huh? Okay, it was a spotted brown horse. Um, yeah, maybe the color of my shirt. You saying my shirt looks like vomit? Okay, because <laughs> that's what we decided. It was kind of a, it was a, it was a putrid color. It's the whole idea behind the word in the original, uh, either putrefying flesh or vomit or that type of thing. It was not supposed to be a color that was pleasant to look at. So we know what we got going on here tonight. <laughs> All right, so think about what we've seen so far, and this is important because of what we're going to see next. We see the spread of the gospel come thundering in on the, the hoofs of this horse and, and then riding alongside it because with the gospel, persecution is going to come alongside it. And the result of the persecution, there's going to be heartache and pain, based, talking about famine, And then the ultimate thing that could possibly happen because of persecution is death. And I believe that's what's being symbolized by uh, these horses here. And so uh, we now get to 
uh, verses 19 through 11, who des- which describes the fifth seal being opened, and we're leaving the horses, and we're going to see uh, something else. And let me remind you once again that Jesus tells us in Matthew 24 and verse 9 that because of the fact that someone is a follower of Jesus Christ, you could be put to death. Um, the world is going to hate you, and you're going to be put to death. And we've seen all this taking place now. So now our attention is going to be turned to something else. I'm going to read uh, all three verses, and then we're going to take our time this evening. As I said, I don't, you know, I don't expect us to get any further than this in order to do these verses justice, but we'll spend some time on all three of these verses. So don't worry about I me. Mean, make sure you ask questions or make comments because I'm expecting some. All right. So verse 9 beginning says, And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them, that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. All right, so it's kind of logical what happens next, and it doesn't seem out of place at all, even though we've switched the vision from horsemen to souls, if you will. But it doesn't seem out of place because you've had this picture already painted for us with the with the bursting of all these other seals, is the idea of persecution for the gospel's sake that ultimately leads leads to death. Okay, and so we've come to that conclusion that the ultimate persecution that Christians are going to face is death. Well, then something needs to be done. Well, what about those people who are dying? And so. We've got the fifth seal open, and what we see, if we picture this in our mind, is you look underneath an altar, and most people think the altar that's being described here is the altar that was in uh, the tabernacle or the temple from the Old Testament, and underneath this altar, uh, you are able to see the souls of them that were slain. Yes, Steve. So we've got this vision now, and picture this in your mind. Uh, there's an Old Testament altar, and somehow or another, he can see underneath the altar. Now, keep in mind, visions are weird. Things don't make sense. Well, if they're underneath the altar, how can you see them? Do you lift them up? Can he see through the ground? Whatever. That's not the point. point is, there are souls who are under the altar. So we have to ask the question, why in the world were these souls under the altar? Why weren't they on top of the altar? Why weren't they beside the altar? Why were they under the altar? What is the symbolism, perhaps, that the Holy Spirit, Jesus, and John wanted us to appreciate in our mind? Okay, so you're saying, so you're saying that they have been brought low or maybe they were being hindered by being underneath because of the altar? I can see that. That they hadn't been fully justified, as we're going to find out here in this text, and therefore they're not allowed to be... Beside the altar, above the altar, they got to be underneath it. Okay, I like that. Anything else anybody like to add? Remember in my class, there's no, really no wrong answers. We just want to learn something. What? That's interesting, too, that, that the altar symbolized 
God and the gospel, and because of their faith in God and the gospel, that was causing them to be crushed. Okay, I like that. Anything else? One neat thing about the book of Revelation and the visions that we see, it's supposed to paint pictures in your mind, and sometimes these pictures are personal. But let's um, put my little slant to it. And to help put my little slant to it, I need a volunteer to read Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 7. Anyone who finds it first, just read out loud so we can all hear you. But read Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 7. All right. The part I want you to think about is this, two things. First of all, what normally happens on an altar? Sacrifice. All right. So there's an illusion of the fact, first of all, that there's an altar here because of sacrifice. And the question that needs to be answered then, what was the sacrifice? It would be these people who were killed because of persecution, which leads to the second thing that Jeremy just read for us, which gives us a pretty good description of what happened when the priest offered sacrifices during the Old Testament. You know, we picture sacrifices of the Old Testament, just an animal was killed and put on an altar and burned. But no, it really wasn't so much about the sacrifice itself, it was about the blood that was spilled. In fact, if you read the old Jewish historian Josephus, sometime on the, sometimes on the Day of Atonement, all the sacrifices that were being done, the priests oftentimes were ankle deep in blood. It's all about the blood. First of all, there's life in the blood, and secondly, Blood is going to be the thing that saves mankind eventually through the blood of Jesus Christ. But one of the things that Jeremy read that took place during these sacrifices, the priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would pour it at the base of the altar. Now, where would that blood go? That's like most things. The ground would soak it up and it would go underneath the altar. It would be all around the altar, but there would be blood going underneath the altar. And so, personally, and there's some, there's others that will agree with me, that they believe that the idea here is they're making the, the, the connection that when a Christian loses their life because of persecution, they are being offered up as a sacrifice to God. Now, do we have any Bible Reference that might help us come to that conclusion? Has anybody else ever made reference to the fact that they were going to be killed and they consider themselves a sacrifice because of it? Paul. What did Paul say, Jeremy? There's, that's exactly right. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 6. He begins by saying, For I'm now ready to be offered in the King James. Literally in the Greek is the idea, I'm ready to be poured out as a sacrifice. I'm ready to be poured out the sacrifice. Some translations, I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering. But the idea there is Paul saying, remember, the last, this is the last chapter of anything that we have record of. As far as we know, this is right before he is going to be executed. And he says, I'm now ready to be offered as a sacrifice. He looked at his death being martyred for the sake of Christianity, as a sacrifice. Now, the Bible also tells us, in such places as Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, 
that we are to present our bodies as living sacrifices. And maybe you never thought about this, but when the point that the writer here is perhaps making here in Revelation chapter 9 is that these people who have already died for the sake of Jesus Christ, that basically what had happened was Rome didn't kill them, Rome didn't execute them, but instead they were offered up as a sacrifice to God. Now you think about that, and that kind of messes with your mind just a little bit, because when a person is put to death, and they were put to death in a variety of different ways during this time, but it was a sacrifice to God? But that's really what it's saying, and that's really what Paul was saying. So we can look at it from this way. When the world looked at it, when a Christian was put to death because of his faith, it looked like a terrible thing. It looked like an awful punishment. Uh, even family members perhaps looked at it and said, oh, this is terrible. This is, they've, they've put father or mother to death or daughter or child to death. But the way that heaven looks at it, the way that God looked at it is, you have given me the ultimate sacrifice for following me. Now, if we're supposed to live our lives alive as living sacrifices, the ultimate sacrifice would be to give our lives literally for the cause of Jesus Christ. And so that's the picture being painted there, and we kind of lose the impact of it, but people who were reading this in the first century, this clicked in their heads. In other words, my dad dying, that wasn't just a, a, a mindless death. My mother being put to death for her faith was not just somebody being put to death, but instead she sacrificed herself in the name of Jesus and God. And it was something that even though to us here on earth it was a terrible event, but to God, now this might surprise you, but to God it was a good thing. Now, like I said, that might mess with your mind just a little bit. But as far as God was concerned, someone who was willing to sacrifice their life for the cause of Jesus Christ, as the rest of the text says, and would not give up the word of God or the testimony, he looked at it as a sacrifice that was pleasing to him. And that's perhaps the picture that's being painted here. Absolutely. And, and, in, and, and especially in this scenario, in the situation they were living in, in a lot of ways, death was a sweet release. Now, there was a problem of your wonder, worrying about your family or worrying about other things, that how they were going to happen here on this earth. But, but as far as God is concerned, if you're willing to be faithful unto death, that you have paid the ultimate sacrifice, that's a good thing. That shows your dedication to the Lord. And so we need to understand here at the very beginning, the picture that's being painted is that the, the people that were under the altar, these are people who are willing to sacrifice themselves. And this is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. These people underneath the altar that are doing the crying out here are people that God loves, that God is, is pleased with, they have sacrificed themselves, and the picture that painted on our, in our minds is their blood has been spilled, and just like in the Old Testament, their blood has been poured underneath the altar. 
is the idea. Any more questions or comments on that? Because I know perhaps that's something you've not even really thought about before. We always think about the Christians being persecuted and them putting to death, being put to death. And, oh, that's awful, that's awful. Well, it is indeed awful because it's making men do things that men shouldn't do. Men shouldn't kill other men. Men shouldn't persecute other men. But if men do persecute you and they put you to death, as far as God is concerned, that's a sacrifice to him. That's absolutely. It's like we've talked about before. I think all of us want to go to heaven, but we just don't want to go right now. Seriously. Because we live in a society and world here in these, these United States. Oh, we have heartache and pain and things that don't always go away. But overall, we have it pretty good. But if you live in a circumstance where every day is tragedy, oh, heaven looks so beautiful. Heaven looks so wonderful. And how it would cause you to long to be in there and rest in your labors, as the psalmist tells us. Anything else? Anybody like to add? Oh, by the way, just let you know, there is a, a thought, a tradition, it's nowhere in the Bible, but it's something that was passed around in the early church, the idea that if somebody did die as a martyr for their faith, that they would automatically bypass uh, the Hadean realm, they'd automatically bypass the judgment day and all that kind of thing, because in a sense they kind of punched their ticket that they're willing to pay the ultimate price, give the ultimate sacrifice, and therefore they skipped all that. Now, that's like I said, there's no biblical for that, and I don't know if I agree with it or not, but there is some old writings that talked about it, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, and they, they, most of the writings you find go back to this one text right here. And so I just thought that was um, kind of interesting. You, auto, you get an automatic ticket to heaven if you die uh, for the cause of Jesus Christ. And um, that might even be what Paul was alluding to when he says, For I'm now ready to be offered in the time of my departure as hand, but I've fought a good fight, I've kept the faith, uh, I've finished the course, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness in heaven, um, which a righteous judge shall give me. He may have been alluding to that also. But, you know, who knows, because the Bible doesn't address it anywhere else. But there's something else that I think is interesting as you start looking at this verse. Notice it says, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain. Now, we read over that, and we might miss something there. But there's some emphasis there that we need to emphasize, and that is he saw the souls of them. Now, once again, we've got to think like they think in the first century and think about how that this would be something that would be comforting to people still living in the world and still having to deal with the persecution. When the world looked at it, and whether these people were beheaded, like perhaps Paul was, or they were crucified, or they were thrown to wild animals, or they were burned alive, they saw the destruction of the body. They saw the body destroyed by some means. But yet, those people weren't dead. Why? Because we have a living soul. A living soul that lives eternally. And so the point is being made, they sacrifice themselves and they continue to live. You're willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice, but the ultimate sacrifice doesn't mean that you're dead and you're dead forever. No, these were people that John saw them. The implication is 
he could visualize these souls or these people who were under the altar. Now, keep in mind, it's a vision. And keep in mind that this is not literal. We sometimes lose that when we start looking at something that sounds like, well, yeah, that sounds almost real. No, we're dealing with visions here in Revelation. And Jesus is no more a lamb than there is no more the fact that there's an altar somewhere and there are people underneath it. Okay? But the implication in the vision is these people aren't dead. They were killed, but they're not dead. And that was something that needed to be driven into their heads. And, but they were definitely slain. In fact, the same root word for slain is the word that you find um, in verse, uh, da, 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 verse 8 where it says to kill with the sword. The same root word to kill and the word for slain there is the same word in the original language as far as the root word is concerned. So this may be shooting back up to verse 8 and making allusion to the fact that well, here is this pale horse and he's death. And hell's fallen after him, and he's going to kill with the sword. Well, these are some of the ones that were killed by the sword with his fourth horse. Okay? And then it goes on and talks about the reason why they were killed, for, killed by the sword. It says, first of all, for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. Now, what does it mean they were killed for the word of God? All right, Christ is the Word of God. Very good. All we have to do is go back to John chapter 1 in the first chapter, the first verse. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and He was God. And it goes on and says, all things were created by Him. All right? So the Word of God here can mean either the fact that this Word is talking about Jesus specifically, or it may be talking about the things that Jesus and God teaches. Either way it works. But I like what Janice said because of the fact that you almost seem like you have a redundancy when you say slain for the word of God and for the testimony they held. Well, if you look at it from the standpoint of a testimony, like we think of testimony, what would be the testimony they held? Spreading the word of God. I believe in the word of God. I believe in Jesus Christ. Um, but we need to understand that what's translated testimony here. I'm just curious. Anybody have anything different from testimony? Witness. Ah, that's better. The word there in the Greek is the word that we get our word martyr from. So literally what we've got on here, idea here is the fact that they were a martyr or a witness. Their, what was their witness? Their witness was that they were willing to die for the word of God. Okay? That's the ultimate witness. And, of course, earlier in the book of Revelation, um, Jesus is referred to as the witness. And so there's a comparison uh, being made there that uh, these, uh, these people were martyrs, that these people were willing to pay the ultimate price and sacrifice their lives uh, for the word of God. But any other questions or comments before we move on to the next verse? Well, the next verse we have them asking a question. And, folks, it's a question of bewilderment. That's the idea that you need to understand and appreciate. And the persons that are asking these questions are the souls that are under the altar. And they're not just asking the question with a normal voice. They're asking a question with a loud voice, showing that this is something that's very important to them. This is something that is bothering them. 
This is something that bewilders them. And the question they ask is, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? Okay. What, why do you think they're asking this question? Let's just ask that question first. These are people who have already died, if you keep with the vision. They're now under the altar, meaning they've paid the ultimate sacrifice, but they're bewildered in asking this question. Why are they asking this question? Okay, um, so if I understand what you're saying, to, to paraphrase what you're saying is, they're asking this question because they want to know how long the evil world is going to get away with what they're doing. Okay? All right, Jeremy, what do you want to say? Now, let me ask you this. Who's really asking the question? The vision we got in front of us, we have a picture of the souls under the altar. But in reality, who is really asking the question? All right? She says we are. People still being persecuted. The people who are reading this book, this is really who's asking this. That's the whole reason why this is here. There's, I don't believe there's actually martyrs up in heaven that are saying, oh, how long is this going? The whole purpose of this vision is not for the people up there in heaven and John. The purpose of this vision is for the people who's reading this book. And don't you know every single person that's living at that time is asking that question right now? When is this going to end? How long is this going to last? And don't we do some of the same thing even today? I posted on Facebook not too long ago, long ago that I said the only exercise I ever get anymore is the, the shaking my head. Because this is amazing. When I see what happened, you know, as far as some of the abortion laws that are being passed and whatnot, I just, I just can't imagine. We live in a world we live in now that somebody can agree to the fact that a baby after it's born can be put to death. I mean, to hear what that guy said on the radio about, well, we'll put it on the counter and make sure it's comfortable. Then once the, wife, once the mother and the doctor decide what to do, then that baby will either live or die. I mean, that just, uh, that flabbergasts me. Some people just, I just don't know. Like I said, I just shake my head. I don't know what else to do. And that's the kind of world we're living in. So we're still, we're still asking ourselves, when is this going to end? When is this crazy going to end? Now, some people have a lot of harsh comments to make about verse 10 and about the question that people are asking in verse 10 because they read it and they look at it and they're saying, well, these are people who want vengeance. And that flies in the face of what Jesus taught. Well, absolutely, it would fly in the face of what Jesus taught. Jesus told us to love our enemies and, and, and take care of those that despise us. And we're not supposed to take personal vengeance against anyone. But they're not asking for vengeance here. They're asking for justice. And they're making the point, the reason why they're asking God is not because they don't have faith in God. They don't think God will do something. Because if you look right here in the text, notice what it says. He says, how long, O Lord, holy and true. In other words, you're going to do what is right, God, and you're going to keep your promise. But they're asking within the standpoint of this. God, you are a God who keeps your promises. You are a God who is a God of justice. 
And God, you said that justice will be done one day. When is that going to happen? That's what they're asking. They're not asking out of a lack of faith. They're not asking out of vengeance. Um, Where is it? Over Romans um, 12 and verse 19 or 9. It's either one of those. It's either 9 or 19. Jesus, I mean, God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Okay? Vengeance belongs to God, not to us. So they're not asking about vengeance. They're asking about, God, when is your eternal nature going to take over? You are a God of justice. And until you display your justice, then the things that are wrong in this world will never be right. And so they're asking the question, how long will that last? They're not criticizing God. They're not questioning God in the sense that they're questioning them and his ability. They just want to know how long uh, these things are going to take place. And um, it's all about the justice of God. Well, I can't believe we've only got six minutes left. What happened there? Well, let's look at verse 11 very quick so we can wrap up this, this little section here. Well, what kind of answer did he give them? What did he tell them when they asked the question, how long? Here's a white robe. Rest a little. In other words, he really didn't give them an answer, did he? He didn't tell them anything definitive. And when I read that, that made me think automatically about Job. Remember all the trouble Job had? And all through the book of Job, he keeps saying, Job keeps saying, if I could just have an audience with God, if I could just sit down with God and I could talk to him about these things, then we could get this all figured out. Well, he finally got an audience with Job, and Job asked him the question, why is this happening to me? And Job says, and basically God said back to him, I'm not going to go through the whole details, but basically God said back to him, hey, I'm God, let me be God, you be Job, we'll, we'll get this all figured out. He didn't give him an answer why they're suffering here on the world. And he's not giving these men an answer, these souls an answer. But first of all, he gives them a white robe. And we've already seen white robes in uh, the book of Revelation, and they symbolize someone who is saved. He needs to remind them that the most important thing is you're saved. Regardless of what happens, you're saved. The people who are on earth who are reading this, you're saved. Regardless of what happens, you're saved. In fact, some people believe that right here in these three verses are the entire theme and subject of the entire book of Revelation. The question is asked, how long? And the answer is, I will take care of it. Don't you worry. You're saved. Don't you worry about it. And white robes were given to each of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest, the King James has. So it makes it sound like that, hey, take a break here. But literally the idea is what? Who's got something different? Wait. And wait is not just the idea of, of hold your horses. The wait is the idea of patience. Be patient. Endure. There you go. Because this is going to last yet for a little season. Well, what's a little season? Well, there's, the Bible doesn't define it for us here. It doesn't tell us how long a little season is. The point is that God has a timetable, and he's going to observe his timetable. In fact, he goes on and says something that sounds almost uh, heinous. It says, uh, your, uh, wait until your fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed. Uh, the King James says, as they were, should be fulfilled. Well, that's, that's very erudite on, of you. Because that's exactly what's going on here. And if y'all don't know what the word erudite means, it means a person who has a lot of intelligence. But anyway, 
the whole section of the scripture here where Jesus says, be patient, endure, wait a little season, there's more people who are going to die. The idea is that God follows his own timetable. In fact, I like what Flo says, a very, very important point that she made here. Because when we go back and look at First Peter or Second Peter chapter three and verse nine, where it talks about how that uh, that a thousand years is as one day with the Lord, and, and one day is a thousand years, that God is long suffering toward us, we're not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Every day that God delays, and what he's talking about here, even with these people, there's going to be more people to die, but every day that God delays the judgment day is a gift. Because it's a gift that somebody, as you said, Flo, might respond to the gospel. And the point that's being pictured here in this little scene we got before us, hey, there's going to be some more people who respond to the gospel. And those people who respond to the gospel, guess what's going to happen to them probably? They're going to die. Because that's the outcome of what's happening here. He's saying, listen, my timetable is not yet ready to do the things that need to be done because there are more people that are going to be saved. And they're being saved may result in them being put to death. But they're still saved. And so this whole vision here and everything that we've seen is not for the purpose of the people there in the throne room of God. It's not just for the purpose of John. This whole thing here is for the people here on earth. And they're well aware how the gospel is spread. They're well aware about the war. They're well aware about the famine. They're well aware about the death. And they're asking the question. How long? How long will this last? And God basically says, you just wait. I've got a timetable. Let me follow my timetable because there's going to be more people who are going to be saved. Even some of those people who are going to be saved that will become your brethren. They're going to die also, but it's because more people are going to be saved. You know, sometimes people ask the question, why didn't when Eve... Uh, and Adam committed that very first sin in the Garden of Eden. Why didn't God go ahead and take care of the situation right then? Send Jesus. Have him die. Boom, sin problem taken care of. Right there at the very beginning when it happened. Well, that wasn't part of God's timetable. That wasn't part of God's scheme of redemption. Mankind had to learn about dependence upon God. They had to learn about the ugliness of sin. They had to understand and appreciate what it meant to be redeemed. And it took thousands and thousands and thousands of years and still is going on. But we need to look at, when we ask the question maybe tomorrow or the next day when things aren't going our way and we might say, God, how long is this junk going to happen? God echoes back from heaven, I have a plan. I'm going to keep my plan. And the reason why I haven't sent my son back yet, because it's another day and another opportunity for somebody to repent. And that, folks, is the picture that's being painted by the fifth seal. Our time is about up, but any questions or comments before we close out the class? Yes, Mike. No, no, that particular idea comes from, well, first of all, the book of Ephesians and a couple other books there where God says whom he has predestined, he has known, and that kind of thing. It's a, it's a warped view of predestination. Now, it's interesting, you mentioned that a little bit later on, just a few verses down the road, we're going to run into the 144,000, which is a specific number, and we have some uh, cultic friends who believe, well, that's the number that's going to be in heaven, and they even 
come to your door and say, well, there's going to be 144,000 in heaven, and then everybody else will live on a regenerated earth. Well, the problem they run into, if you start, as we're going to start looking at the text later on, to be a part of that 144,000, you had to be Jewish and you had to be male. So that cuts out most everybody I come in contact with that is going to go to heaven. So anyway, but we'll stop there, but appreciate that comment. But that's, no, they, they don't go there at all for that. There's, they go to, like I said, Ephesians especially, um, where they get the idea of predestination and only a certain number are going to be saved. And, and you can thank John Calvin for that. He's the one that came up with that particular idea. But good question. Anything else? Jeff, anything you want to add? There you go. And when your patience is tried every day, it's easy to ask that question. And the implication of the text is there's nothing wrong with asking that question. Just respect the answer that God gives back to you. All right, thank you guys.